Welcome to the Hacka Podcast. My name is Greg Hackathorn. I hope you all are doing well. Today we are celebrating 50 episodes on the podcast. I'm finding it hard to believe that we have made it this far, but I'm so grateful. A week doesn't pass without someone reaching out to me and saying that they're listening to the podcast and that it has been a blessing to them. It really is amazing. From those who have given me constructive feedback to those who suggest guests for the show and even help me make connections, to those who share episodes with their friends, I want to say a massive thank you. And today I have a special treat for you. If you've listened to the show from the beginning, it will be a reminder of the amazing guests we have been blessed with. And for those who are new, it may inspire you to listen to some of the conversations that you may have missed along the way. But before we get to it, let me share a recent five-star review we received from a listener in the U.S. They said, favorite, without the U, (laughs) the American spelling, favorite podcast. One of my favorite listens every week. I always feel encouraged and challenged after listening. Thank you for leaving that review and for listening to the podcast. So glad that it encourages you and challenges you. That is uh, our goal here is to encourage and to challenge us to draw deeper in our relationship with God and to do more for the kingdom of God. If you have time to rate and review the show yourself on the app that you listen to the Hacka podcast on, I would greatly appreciate that. I think Spotify is just rating only, but Apple Podcasts gives you the ability to leave a review. So Either way, I would be grateful if you would leave a rating or a review. It just makes it easier for new people to discover the show in your country. And it allows the impact of what we're doing here to expand. That, that's the goal. It's not to make a name for ourselves, but it's to impact as many people as possible so that the kingdom of God will continue to grow and expand. One last thing, we've just added the podcast to Amazon Music, so you can now listen to it in the Audible app or through Amazon Music for those who subscribe to that. Now that we have taken care of all of that, let's celebrate. Woohoo! Three, two, one. Today I'll be sharing with you just a fraction of what we have experienced across the first 49 episodes of the Hacka Podcast. I will be including the complete breakdown of where you can listen to each full episode in the show notes, so if you happen to miss an episode that I named, just go to the show notes and you can find uh, exactly, I'll have the timestamps on there and everything, so you'll be able to find exactly what I was referring to. One of the cool things about the podcast has been hearing the amazing stories of the guests we have been able to have on the show. And I wanted to start off this celebration with one of the funniest from Luame Diaz in episode 17. I will probably say that has to be one of the most interesting, if not the most interesting conferences I've ever preached in my life. Um, Because I'll tell you why. It's a circus. They call it a circus general conference. So what it is, it's, it's a, uh, well, I'll give you a little of the backstory. 30 years ago, there was a family that was 
a circus family, a family of like acrobats and so forth, that were um, someone witnessed to them over in Mexico and they were saved. And they were still doing the whole, you know, their whole uh, routine and stuff. They got picked up by Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus, which was performing three to six months into their, they were brand new, like babies in the Lord. And they were over at Madison Square Garden in New York City for two months. They stayed there for two months. So Daniel Scott called my father. Daniel Scott was a, a missionary and worked at headquarters and stuff. He called my father and said, hey, could you help us? This is a brand new family from Mexico. They are right now stationed in New York. They need to be disciples. I mean, they know nothing. So my dad would go to the circus every single night. My dad would go and he would wait until the event was done. And it would be late, like really late at night. I remember him coming back in the wee hours of the morning every night. Um, and he'd have to go to work, but this is like faithfully, this is what he would do. So he went out there and taught them doctrine, taught them about the Bible. It, it's ba basically, they were getting um, a Bible school education that was being condensed into a month or two. Um, so that's what my dad did for them. Well, fast forward 30 years to now. So what happened was they were, they were having this conference. Let me explain what kind of conference it is. They went back to Mexico and started evangelizing. And they've had a revival of circus families get converted wow. in the last five to 10 years or so. And at this conference, there were over 37 circuses represented. 37 of them. Wow. All right. So it's all circus families, their owners, everyone that's in the business of circus was there. Now they're all at different stages in their decide, you know, their maturity, their, but they all, they're all baptized in Jesus name. They're all, I mean, it's amazing. They had over 300 and something get the Holy ghost during the services. So they're, you know, the circus people are bringing their friends and their families and, and also workers that, that aren't converted and owners and stuff. So they put up this big old circus tent and they have all sorts of people, hundreds of people piled up in this thing. And it's the craziest deal, bro. Cause you're in service and all of a sudden there are people doing somersault <laughs> like <laughs> where you're like, what? Okay. Let me explain. So during service, um, you know, everyone's at the altar and, and then they had a couple of ushers come out and they uh, opened up the, uh, the scenery kind of like, so that there's a, there, there was a pathway from the pulpit all the way to the back of the tent. Right. And so what they did was, now, let me explain. This is like during the service. This is during worship. So they put a uh, they put a balloon. They or they taped the balloon on the pulpit at the at the front of the okay. uh, at, at the tent. And there is this guy that goes all the way to the back. He's a contortionist. Yeah. So this guy is all the way in the back. He's 
he's on two hands, on his two hands, places his feet all the way up on top of his head, like from the back, he places his feet. So he's all the way contorted. They give him a bow and arrow. And with his feet, this guy shoots the balloon with his feet, shoots the balloon from all the way at the back of the tent. Mid worship. That's the, during worship. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that was going on. So you didn't even know where to look. Like, you know, there's a bunch of athletes and performers and stuff. Oh, and they're, they're not, they're really worshiping. Mm. They're really worshiping. But from time to time, like you'd have someone just pop a, a somersault or do something where you're like, what is going on here? Um, but bro, it was the most interesting deal, but you can't knock it unless you're there. Like mm. the sincerity, the purity, the people who are just, they're new to the gospel. And they're just like embracing it. They're just mm. loving it and bringing their friends and their family. And they may not understand all the ins and outs of holiness yet, but man, they're just excited about Jesus and mm. excited about learning and doctrine. And, and they're so hungry. And uh, so, yeah, we had close to 400 receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost that night or uh, during the conference. It, it was just amazing. I that's would awesome. say that that's probably one of the most intriguing conferences of all time for me in the 20 something years that I've been doing this. I remember thinking as he started that story, surely he's not going to say that they did carnival tricks during the worship. What an unbelievable story. And the fact that over 100 people were filled with the Holy Spirit during the conference is just so cool. From one of the funniest to one of the most incredible in episode 36 and 37, we were blessed to be joined by one of my heroes, Sister Margaret Bellet. We start this story after we had learned that her husband died suddenly in Irian Jaira, just a few days after they arrived there to work and establish a church. Sister Bellet traveled back to Australia to bury her husband, and she really didn't know what to do next. So she decided to travel to America for a bit, and the story unfolds from there. But Brother Plowman said to me one morning, he said, will you stand up and speak to the people after the service? Just let them know what happened. And I did. And a woman came up to me and she said, she was a GP, a doctor. And she said, do you, do you believe that you and your husband were called to go to Arianjaya? And I said, well, I don't know. I said, um, you know, I, I said, I don't have an answer for that. I believe we were, but I don't know now. And she said, if God had really wanted you to go there, why do you think he allowed your husband to die? Mm -hmm. I said, I don't know. His thoughts are way above our thoughts. His yeah. ways are not our ways. I don't know. And she said, don't you see? Would you have gone to Irian Jaya if your husband had died in Australia? I said, oh, no. Mm. She said, don't you see? She said, it wasn't your husband. God used your husband to take you to Irian Jaya, but you're the one who's going to be the missionary. 
And when she said this to me, I felt, I felt an overpowering sense of the Holy Ghost. Mm -hmm. But it was frightening at the same time, but I never said anything. When I got back to Australia, I got a call from the Australian Volunteers Abroad. And they said, Margaret, we're really sorry about Ronald. We really liked Ronald, you know, but we would like to ask you if you would return in, instead and carry on the work. And I said, but I don't have anything to offer. Mm. I said, I've got nothing. And they said, yes, but the need now is not your husband's skills. You have an accounting background and a computer background, and this is what we really need. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, it took us two years to get a visa to get in there because it's controlled by the military and no Westerners were allowed in. I said, I'm not waiting two years for a working visa to get back in there. Right. I can't put my life on hold for yeah, that long. of course. She said, if we can get the working visa quicker, will you go? I thought to myself in my ignorance, I thought, huh, they haven't got a hope. So I am as safe as the Bank of England. So I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> anyway, about four or five days later, she rang me again and she said, just want to let you know, Margaret, you're leaving on the 4th of April. Oh my you're goodness. going in through Papua New Guinea. That gave me about three weeks, or four weeks it was, to organise everything and to go in. I've got to share this because this is the Lord. It's because of the Lord. So. Yes. All the time there was doubt. All the time there was doubt. There was fear. I didn't have my husband. I was still grieving. And this time I'm going in through Papua New Guinea. The rascals were very real. When the car picked me up at the airport in Papua New Guinea, Port Moresby, to go to the hotel to stay overnight before I boarded the plane to get into Irianjaya next morning, everything was locked. Don't open your door. Don't open your window. The fear of attack was really very, very powerful. And so that I sat in that hotel room that night thinking to myself, I wrote it in my journal, why am I doing this? Why am I sitting here? I haven't heard from the Lord. I don't understand what's going on. And anyway, the next morning I boarded the plane, there were some Papuan ladies a German man sitting behind me with a couple of his friends. And all of a sudden, I just, I looked at the pigs and the chickens in the plane and I thought, this is madness, absolute madness. Then we had to get off at Vanimo to show our visas before we went over the border into Irianjaya. And it was a 4B2 piece of wood on top of two 44-gallon drums. And I approached it, and the man said to me, 15 kina. I said, I don't have any kina. I only have um, Indonesian rupiah. Or I have my card, 15 kina, or you don't get back on the plane. And I thought, oh, Lord. And the German man behind me, he said, I'll pay you 15 kina if you give me the rupiah. Mm. I had a sheaf of rupiah in my hand, about a million rupiah at the time. And I said, oh, thank you, thank you. I said, what's the exchange rate? And he said, don't worry about the exchange rate. You give me what you've got there. I said, that's all I've got. I said, if I give you that, I can't get a taxi to Jayapura and nobody knows I'm coming. And he said, no, he said, 
I'll pay you 15K now, but you've got to give me the rupiah. So I gave him the rupiah so I could get back on the plane. I got into the plane, the plane took off. I'm looking out the window and I'm weeping. And I said, Lord, nobody knows I'm coming. I'm just arriving. I don't know how to get to Jayapura. It's an hour's drive. And I turned around and I said to the man, excuse me, is somebody picking you up? And he said, yes. I said, do you think I could get a lift into um, Jayapura with you? Oh, I don't know, he said. You'll have to wait and we'll see. Mm. So when we arrived, um, and I'm sitting there crying quietly, when we arrived and we're waiting for the luggage to come off the carousel, I heard someone calling, Salamat datang, Ibu Margaret. Salamat datang. And I looked around to see if there was somebody else called Margaret, another woman. And I couldn't see anybody who looked like a Westerner. And then I heard again, Ibu Margaret, Salamat datang. And I looked up. And there was a crowd of people on a, um, what do you call it, a veranda type thing that ran around the top of the, um, where you get your luggage out. And they were all waving to me. And I looked at them and I thought, I don't know anybody out there. And then the next thing, they all ran down the stairs and they spoke to the man guarding the door and he opened it and they all came in. And they put garlands of flowers around my neck and they had a tree with beads and things on it. And they hugged me and, I mean, I didn't understand the word they were saying, <laughs> you know. But they took me out and outside there were four Kijangs, which are big four-wheel drives. And and I said, is this for me? And yes, yes, yes. And I happened to look along the um, walkway and the German man was still standing down there. And he's a lift hadn't come. <laughs> And I walked down to him and I said, uh, have you got a lift? And he said, no, he said, it looks like they haven't turned up. I said, do you want me to ask my friends to take you into Jaipura? And he said, yes. <laughs> and I knew then this is of the Lord. Mm. So who, who were those people, though, the ones that met you at the Those airport? people belonged to a women's group. Mm. And um, when my husband died in Abipura, a Dutch missionary... Um, Marika, Marika Werimon, um, had come. She was my translator to organise my husband's body to go back to Australia. She got a call from Andrea Flew, my programme officer, to say that I was arriving unexpectedly and could she look after me. Wow. She put the word out and I became known as the woman whose husband died and she came back. The woman whose husband died and she came back. It still gives me goosebumps hearing that story. One of the reasons I finally decided to launch a podcast, after thinking about it for years, was this next guest, Adam Shaw, who we spoke to in episode 19. He hosts his own podcast, The Restorationist, and if you're not a subscriber to that, I highly encourage you to check that show out, listen to it. It's a, it's a great podcast. And I, I love the insight that he has on modern culture. He shared with us what he thought would be the biggest challenge in our culture moving forward. I think bigger, more culturally, that Gen Z is going to be the first. And when I speak of Gen Z, I'm speaking of who I really have a grip on. And that's, you know, Canadian, American, Western Europe and Australian culture that, you know, those that live 
and that kind of you know that that 21st century you know New Zealand as well you know post postmodern world our 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 cultural worldview um, that you and I grew up in and previous generations was was a guilty innocent worldview and so things were wrong if you broke the rules you were guilty if you followed the rules or you towed the line you were innocent people were viewed on the basis of individual merits but one of the things I have noticed as we moved from a, you know, millennials were a postmodern culture and now Gen Zers are in a whatever's next post postmodern <laughs> culture, um, that we are moving to a shame and honor society. And that is where um where it is it is more likely that you are going to be shamed by breaking from the collective will. And in both of our countries that we, you know, the we have found that our our cultures are much more of a shame honor culture than the United States. That's for sure, because the United States right now, through you know, let's use COVID as the example. Um, COVID is you know regulations, restrictions, masking in America. Individual choice is celebrated, and there is intense pushback against any sort of conforming to cultural norms. Well, if you want to be publicly shamed in our culture. You voice an opinion different from the majority. And now within Canada, there's now beginning to be this groundswell of opposition as people are now saying out loud and in the public square how they really feel about um, the various controls that that have been placed on Canadian society and the impact on mental health and addiction. But that has not happened until very recently. And it's because this is just an example of how our cultures have become shame or honor where it's not about whether or not you're wrong it's about whether and where you stand amongst the collective and are you a person of honor or are you someone that should be shamed and shunned and i feel that for gen zers i'm speaking specifically to the church as we are seeing a reinvention of gender norms a reinvention of sexual ethics and just a a very secular or dare i say pagan worldview and pagan culture for anyone to get up and say, not just this is what I believe to be true, but I believe that this is the truth for all people in all times and all places. And I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father but by him. That is now a radically subversive message to our culture. And I feel the greatest challenge for Gen Z Christians, Gen Z apostolics, is learning to function in a culture where you can be shamed and ostracized for having a different view from the collective whole. But as I was reflecting on where the world is going and how that's going to impact us as the church as we move forward, especially Gen Zers, it's that we are no longer a a, a guilty, innocent culture. We are in a post-truth age. And so it's learning to be okay to stand out and be who you are and be who God has called you to be and be an apostolic follower, of spirit-filled follower of Jesus, while the rest of the culture would like to shame and shun and ostracize you from all aspects of public life. And this is even more present in Canada than it even is in Australia. I follow our countries very, very closely. I'd say Canada is about five to seven years in the um uh, in the kind of in the secular race ahead of of Australia. Um as far as just kind of the function of our of our culture goes, it's becoming increasingly pagan. And one of the things that I have noticed is that that clinging to the idea or the concept of truth when everything is my truth 
um, is becoming increasingly more difficult. So I yeah. think the great challenge for Gen Zs, uh, those that are followers of Jesus, is going to be not saying, well, Jesus is my truth, but it's saying that Jesus is the truth and dealing with the disruption of life that could come your way by living in that kind of world. Now, with that in mind, let's consider what some of our guests have had to say about answering the call of God on our lives, because our culture desperately needs those who will answer the call, those who will speak the truth without fear or favor of man. In episode 18, Simon Butcher talked to us about how answering the call of God to ministry is a little bit different than the general call to serve that everyone must adhere to. I think something else that uh, you've probably heard me say this before in conversation, but we, we must understand the difference between serving, sacrifice, and obeying a call. Uh, you mentioned this already, but every, every child of God is called to serve, right. to sacrifice. And the, the things we always say, we talk about our time, our talent, and our treasure. We're all called to serve and sacrifice. But when we're involved in that kind of uh, service, we are still controlling that. Mm -hmm. uh, it fits into our life. It fits into where we can see it. You know, it's, we're available here. We can do this. We, we're willing to contribute A, B, and C. But a call to ministry is a yes or no invitation. It's, it's not a negotiation. It's not a, well, I, you know, I can give you two hours on a Tuesday afternoon. If you're called to ministry, it's a choice to either obey or walk away. And a call will cause you to step out in faith onto what seems like thin air, uh, to go to a town or a city that doesn't have an apostolic church, to go and commit yourself to an elder who is becoming weary and looking to transition, to, to go somewhere that's never heard the gospel and take the, the chance of, what will I do for a job? Where will we live? How will we, all those questions that don't have answers, a call will cause us to do those things. And um, to me, to go back to the Old Testament, it's the difference between obedience and sacrifice. Hmm. And I think, I think that's crucial for the church today, that we recognize the difference between simply serving and answering a call. Because I think we, 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 I don't think, I don't think churches have a lot of lazy people. I would never say that. I think churches have a lot of involved people. They're helping, they're serving in one way or another. But I believe he's still calling people to preach the word. And I think there are people that need to not simply serve, but obey a call. And if we are going to answer the call to ministry, we must have a burden for our generation, as Jonathan Downs shared with us in episode 26. Get involved in outreach. Start reaching for the lost in the outreach, or or let's let's get a little bit closer to home. What about inreach? Mm. Now now I'm a pastor. I know the importance of inreach. There there are people in the church that you can minister to. You feel the call of God to preach, then start ministering to people in your church. Do what you know to do. The loner, the shy one, the quiet people. The young person who doesn't have parents in church, go out of your way to find those people, encourage and support them. Because sometimes you'll feel that call and you don't know exactly what to do, but do what you know to do. And this is the bottom line. If you don't have a burden for your peers, then what's the point? Mm. Even being a preacher. If you don't have a burden for the people that are in your church or in your youth group, 
I mean, that's that's where the burden, you've got to have a, you can't preach without a burden. That's so good. And yeah. so when you don't know what to do, you may feel called, just do what you know to do. And I would go as far to say is you can't preach unless you've got a burden. There's no way mm. you could preach without a burden. Okay. In fact, uh, T.F. Tenney, <laughs> a funny story about T.F. Tenney. There was a, a young preacher preaching at the um, Louisiana campground at, at the the youth service there. And uh, T.F. Tenney uh, came over to check on the youth service and he found the preacher out the back of the stage talking with his mates. T.F. Tenney walked past him and he grabbed him by the back of the collar and he said, I could pick your burden up with tweezers. Oof. And uh, it was the most shocking statement from an elder in the church to a young guy who's just preached but wasn't praying for anyone in the altar, you know. Mm. He was out the back talking with his friends and TF10 said those, those sharp words, I think I could pick your burden up with tweezers, you know. To be effective in ministry, we've got to have a burden for the lost souls. A reoccurring question that I have deliberately asked on the podcast is advice that our guest would give to someone starting out in ministry, someone answering the call. I picked out four different answers to that question. The first is from my pastor, Stanley Harvey, way back in episode 9. The second is Jessica Marquez from episode 25, and that's followed by Dr. David Norris in episode 39, and finally from Jonathan Quinones in episode 22. I would take them back to Ecclesiastes 9 and 10. It says, whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might. For there he says, you know, the writer says, there's no work, no device, no, no knowledge, no wisdom in the grave, wherever you, uh, where you're going to end up. So it says, you know, you, we don't know how long we have on this earth. But whatever we have available to us, and this is the same message that Brother Slack gave, but whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might. Mm. So at this stage, if your hands cannot find the pulpit where maybe some feel the call and some will will find that calling there but at this stage in their ministry it's not right there right now well what can your hands find to do you've got to look for it you've got to look for what you can do whether it's leading a small group teaching a bible study uh, helping in sunday school um, helping in the music team wh whatever it is that's available to you and you do it with everything that you have do with all of your might, all of the talent and skill that God has given you. Um, and I'm convinced that when you do that, that your gift will make room for you because your gift has to develop. You know, you're, you're not, your hands are not strong enough to, to handle the pulpit, but your hands may be strong enough to handle a Bible study. Right. And, and while you're handling that Bible study, your hands are getting stronger. Mm. You're building up your muscles. And that's exactly how it worked for me was, you know, in our small group and, and it, ours was a little bit different, brother Greg, when we had a small group, it was in a little unit in, in Lakemba and we had a pulpit <laughs> on a Saturday night. We had oh, a pulpit wow. and we had to dress up in church. We had a shirt, tie and suit. Oh man. And we had to have, we had to have rows. The seats were put in rows. It was like mini church <laughs> in this little, uh, I think brother Slag would have had a heart attack if he saw it, but. But it, we treated it like church, and, and it was, again, part of our, of our development. And so you've got to find whatever you're able to do. If the door shuts on you, shuts uh, to you or about when it comes to uh, preaching in youth ministry or leading a connect group, but, but yet the door's open for you uh, for Bob studies. Don't get frustrated with what's not open, but, but whatever you can find, do it with everything that you have. 
and God will make room for you. When I finally knew that I had a call of God on my life, when I accepted that call of God on my life, the first thing that I did was surround myself with people that would believe in me, with people that would help me and support me and make sure that I would become who I'm supposed to be. And I'm so thankful that God has brought these people into my life. I didn't like go knock on their doors and stuff or send them random emails. I just started praying. And I started praying and asking God, God, I ask that you grant me grace, honor, and favor with people that I come into contact with me. Lay me on people's hearts, the people that need to be in my life, because I want to be able to hear sound voices that will speak to me and lead me and guide me to the places that I need to go to. Reading the word of God, prayer, all of these things are so essential. You know, first time I went to Australia, I got the phone call asking me to go to Australia. I actually got an email from your mother-in-law. Mm-hmm. Sent me an email. And when I got the email, I read it and I'm like, what? Australia? I don't know anybody in Australia. And this lady's asking me to go for 21 days and preach like 22 times but I don't even know who she is. And so I called Cindy Miller after I'd spoken to my husband about it. And I said, mom, I'd like to know who is Gina Gretsch and why is she inviting me to Australia? I don't even know who she is. And mom, Cindy Miller told me, Jessica, just say yes and go. And I said, but mom, I already have conferences that I need to get to. She says, well, call them and ask if you can reschedule or if you can send somebody in your place because it's vital for you to go to Australia. And when she told me that, I knew that I needed to go to Australia. So I flew to Australia. And when I get there, again, I didn't know Gina Gretsch at all. And I was about to spend 21 intensive days with this lady, because when you get to Australia, it's like, you're with that person. You sleep in the same places, you eat together, you fly together, you drive together. You're either going to love each other or hate each other by the time that the 22 days are done. But I remember it was my second ladies conference that we, we had already done Queensland and then we were at the Gold Coast and I was praying and I was going through a difficult time in my life at that moment and not very many people knew it. But Gina Gretsch came out of her room and when she came out of her room, she sat down. And first she tried to make me eat Vegemite, which is absolutely horrible. You never want to eat it if you're an American. I promise you don't want to taste it. Agreed. But she she sat down and she started telling me this story. And she said, I've never shared this story with anybody before, but God told me to share it with you. And she starts telling me the story and it was exactly what I was going through. And I'm looking at her like, Who told her anything about me? I don't even know who this woman is. And here she is reading my mail to me and I'm the speaker. And so she's looking at me. And if you know Gina Gretsch, you got to know she can get really intense. And she was like really intense telling me this stuff. And after she finished saying her story, she looked at me and she said, do you understand what the Lord's trying to tell you? And I'm like, well, I kind of do. She said, okay, that's all that we needed to make sure that happened. And since that moment, Gina Gretsch became my very close friend. She's my accountability partner. She knows the good, the bad, the ugly, the very ugly, and the ugliest parts of me. And she still loves me. But she makes sure that I stay where I'm supposed to be at. I could get a call from Australia at any time and just say, Jessica, the Lord just told me this. 
or Jessica, what are you doing? Or what's going on in your life? Because I made sure that I have people in my life that hold me accountable. People in my life that ask me the hard questions. People in my life that make sure that I continue down the path that I'm supposed to be on. I mentioned Cindy Miller, mentioned Gina Gretsch, Aurelia Hopkins. These three women, they're older than I am. But I feel that when we gravitate towards people that have already walked down paths that we haven't walked down, they can help us become who we're supposed to be. A lot of times young ministers want to surround themselves with other young ministers. And when they surround themselves with other young ministers from crisis moments come in your life and uh, you want to take a path that you shouldn't, instead of having a wise sound voice that will say, hey, just hang on a moment. Just be still. Listen for the voice of God. Uh, we have lost so many of our young ministers because they just don't stop and wait and listen to our elders. And I believe that person in our lives is so essential. Well, there's not one path. Back in the olden days when I was um, starting ministry, there were two paths in the United States here. One was you could evangelize. Back then, people came to church a lot. Didn't matter if you were good or not. <laughs> they were a oh, sweet young couple, you know, you know so... It kind of got you started. And then another uh, typical path would be maybe to take a little country church for a couple of years and the old farmers and their families uh, would beat up on you for uh, the time that you were there. And after you had that experience, you go on to something else. Uh, another opportunity you could have was to start a church. And and uh, my wife and I evangelized a couple of years and then we, we did start a church. So nowadays it's different though. We understand more about starting churches. Starting churches is like starting a business. Hmm. You know, one, uh, two in 10 businesses that start actually succeed, and one in 10 actually does more than exist. It, it grows. So right. uh, churches are hard to start. And so we're understanding more about um, teams starting churches and uh, strategizing and starting churches and so on. Um, within a local co context of a church, if you have a church that's doing ministry, there's there's oftentimes uh, opportunities to minister. Now, maybe it's not a titled thing, but there's always something that needs to be done. There's always, I mean, there's there's people that need to be picked up. There's a ministry you can start and this or that um, old folks home or, or whatever. But sometimes you just have to look for them, and they're usually they look a lot like work and not like ministry and they're usually not a lot of accolades for them uh, but but whatever you can do you know do with all your heart and then of course you'd have to have open doors um people that believe in you your pastor or uh even uh, besides your pastor mentors and uh sometimes there's things you can do to prepare you can sometimes there's like a bible college setting there are books you can read and if you're hungry, there are lots of ways to, to grow more. So you'll never know enough. Mm. People say, well, I know enough to get in the ministry. Well, guess what? Um, nobody knows enough to represent God. So it's always an act of faith. And so I believe in lifelong learning. It's not like, well, yeah, now I've achieved. Now I know everything. And so here I am. The most important thing, and I may even end a little bit with this too, just to touch it again in, in, in the end for those that come on a little bit later, but the, the number the number one thing, you have, you have to develop a work ethic and get involved with that work ethic. Mm -hmm. We are all given to something. 
at a young age. Some are given to sports. Some are given to games. Some are given to, to ac academics. Some are given to, to, to reading. Like we are all given to something. And it starts at a very, very young age. Some are given to art. Some are, you know, what, whatever these talents and hobbies, some are given to that. You have to make sure from, from whatever age you are listening to this, that you would put forth a work ethic and get involved in the ministry that God has allowed you to partner with in your local church. Mm -hmm. Ministry is not outside of your local church. And so you feel a call to ministry. What are you doing in your local church? How are you serving in your local church? Don't, I'm not talking about speaking. I'm not talking about singing. How are you serving in your local church? From the parking lot to the altar, to the restrooms, how do you serve? I'm picking up trash. I'm opening the door for people. I'm looking for elders that are coming in that need help parking. I'm looking for elders that need help getting out of their vehicle. Maybe they're dropping off their spouse to get out because it's a little challenge for them to walk so far. I am serving in every capacity. I'm getting there early because I want to pick up the trash. I want to make sure. I'm going to check with pastor to make sure. Do they need any help with the landscape? I want to, I want to get involved. If you're feeling that call, get involved. Develop a work ethic. If you don't have it, develop it. Don't, don't settle for uh, my mom never taught me, my dad never taught me, or nobody was ever there for me. And we're telling you right now on this podcast, <laughs> develop a work ethic. God does not use the lazy. God does not, he, he does not anoint lazy. He does not choose lazy. He does not look for lazy. He will use and all of us are imperfect. He will use the imperfect. He will use us if we are willing to put forth effort. If we're willing to get involved, don't, don't look at ministry as the, the preaching point or the teaching point or, or you know the attention. No. How can I serve my local church? That, if you feel that call, start answering that question. How can I serve my local church? Do they need me in children's ministry? Do they need parking lot attendants? Do they need ushers? Do they need somebody to help and learn sound and media? Do they need somebody on the social media team? What do they need? What does my church need? And then you approach it. This is something I tell some of our young men and young ladies. Approach it like you are the pastor. And what I mean by this is there is no pastor that is okay with walking by a piece of trash. Right. There's yeah. no pastor. No. <laughs> when they say a piece of trash, like, no, 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 no. We got to take care of this. I got to pick this up. I got, I got our young men and young ladies. They got to learn. They got to, but what, I, what I'm saying is approach it the way that he cares for the people, the way that he cares for the church, the way that he cares uh, for others, take that approach. Hmm. You see trash, you, you see it, man, there's, there's so many kids and there's only one teacher. I wonder if maybe they need somebody to step in as a teacher's aide. Do they need help organizing? I noticed we have this area, but maybe they need some help with sign-ins and check-ins, and maybe they need help with water. Maybe, You know what? Why don't I help clean the baptistry? You know, those types of things. That's what you do. You don't look for, you don't look for the, the end goal of, of preaching a conference, being the pastor. You, you, don't, you don't look for that when you feel the call of ministry. When you feel the call of ministry, what you look for is you look for areas of weakness. You look for areas that maybe have been ignored. Hmm. And it's not always on purpose, but let's just say there's so many things going on. 
there's going to be certain areas. Maybe the landscaping has been ignored. Maybe, maybe somebody forgot to clean the baptistry. That happens, believe mm-hmm. it or not. It does, yeah. Maybe, maybe somebody got caught up and they were busy and they canceled on the in the last minute, and now somebody has to throw a Hail Mary for a, a Sunday school lesson and a children's service, and they're just gonna throw it out there and whatever happens, happens. You see that, you be the one to catch it, you be the one mm-hmm. to help. And that's what you need to do. When you feel the call to ministry, you look for areas of weakness. You look for areas of need. You look, okay, where and how can I serve? All of that is such tremendous advice about where to start. And we're so blessed to have had the wisdom of all these men and women of God to share with us where to start when it comes to ministry and doing the things of God. But after you've been walking with God for some time and opportunities arise, how do we know for certain what is from God and what is not? Jacob Caltabiano answered that question for us in episode 13. Well, first I'll say the longer you're walking with God, the easier it becomes to discern his voice. That's a growth thing. But for myself personally, and I know everybody can give a different view on this. This is just me. I have discerned the voice of God for me, for myself, as a quiet witness within my spirit. That I know it's, it's a strong witness in my spirit, and it's going to give God glory. So, for example, coming to the Golgas for a holiday, this place is an amazing place for, the, for a holiday. To want to live here, never in my thinking. All my life, I want to live in Sydney, born and raised. But for me, there's this, this witness in my spirit, for starters. Secondly, it doesn't contradict his word, the obvious. Right. Uh, thirdly, when I feel a, a strong witness in my spirit that God's speaking to me, I have mentors and leaders in my life that I go to. Uh, when I was in the Pentecostal of Sydney, I had my pastor, who I still go to now, by the way, Pastor Stan. That was a gauge for me. Am I hearing God? Or was it just my emotion? And I would bounce, you know, Pastor, I feel that God's spoken to me. I feel there's this witness in my spirit. It, it, it keeps coming to me. It comes to me over and over again. Some of these times when God speaks to me, it comes out of nowhere. You know, it's not just a good idea that Jacob's having. It's a witness within my spirit. So I bounce it off some of the mentors that I have in my life. And I, I will say, for any young man, any young woman that feels a call of God, a sense of purpose in the ministry, you need to have godly men and godly women in your life to bounce ideas off. Amen. If you have accountability and submission, you're in a dangerous place. Yeah. You need to have, firstly, your pastor uh, as the man of God, as a woman of God, and other leaders that you know that aren't going to tell you what you want to hear. They're going to tell you what you need to hear. Right. So if I hear something from God and I run a past. Pastor Stan at the time, and I said, Pastor Stan, I feel that God's calling me to do blah, blah, blah. And he turns around and says, that's crazy. It contradicts God's will and purpose for anybody's life, and it's sinful. Well, then thank God I ran it by him before I made some of the greatest mistakes of my life. Hmm. Second, uh, I know that God's spoken into my heart. I can't deny it. It's it's a witness there. It's not my emotion, but in case it is my emotion, I'm going to take it to the man or woman of God to pray with me about and help me seek confirmation. Uh, in saying that, you need your pastor. And if you are uh, uh, in a church, young young people, in your church, you have your pastor as the voice of God. And if there are other mentors in your life, your pastor needs to be aware of that mm. because what they tell you does not trump your pastor at all. He's the man, she's the woman of God that he's got to lead you. And if there are other people that speak into your life, it's a safe place to let your pastor always know. Because God is speaking through men and women of God. I was going to say, and you need to submit yourself to the answer they give you. 
Because mm. the true man of God's not going to tell you what you want to hear. They're going to tell you what God's trying to already tell you. And it's going to be confirmed through the man or woman of God. And so if you don't like what they're saying, you, I, I personally myself, I see that as the voice of God. Mm. You know, I see his word as his voice. I see the, the leadership, the, the past that he's given us is his voice for our lives. So therefore, when he doesn't say what you want to hear, know that if it's God's, God is speaking through him, if you submit to that, there are blessings that come with that. Once you hear from God, you often have to have the courage to step out, to leave the comfortable for the uncomfortable, to leave uh, a place of complacency to a place of challenge and being stretched. David McGovern, who is a missionary to Los Angeles, shared with us why it's so important to resist comfort in episode 35. And I think this this kind of speaks to the heart of um, where the transition in our movement is going to have to address and kind of come back around to, to mission, right? Because the early Pentecostal movement in North America that that was birthed in the Azusa Street revivals and you know Topeka, Kansas and Indianapolis and Houston and these were urban revivals. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were cities. And it got away from that. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that, that we probably don't have time today to unpack all the reasons for that. I think some of them were, some of them were um, economic, some of them were racial, but this is what happens when I think there's, there's like a natural human progression towards comfort. But my problem with that is what does it say about your health? when they say, Hey, it's time to just make them comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, that means you're dying. You know, so right. you're going to go home and end of life care, right? It's, it's hospice it's end of life. It's, you're just going to make them comfortable. There's really nothing else. You're dying. And I, I think there's a parallel here that when we seek comfort, it's something has died within mm-hmm. us. And that is a natural human condition. I, I fully understand that. I'm guilty of it. You're guilty of it. We're all guilty of it, seeking comfort. But I do think there's a few things here. We have to stay on mission. We have to stay on mission. This is difficult when you make decisions based on comfort. In other words, you you know, I know of Holy Ghost-filled families that have left the city because, you know, they went and bought a cheaper house somewhere. It's like, okay, you can do that but you can't do both. Mm. You, you can't fulfill mission and also pursue comfort at, at, in an ideal world. I can live a comfortable life while I pursue mission, but it doesn't always work out that way. Mm-hmm. And spoiler alert, you know, if you read the new Testament, it rarely ever works out that way, <laughs> yeah. but we have this idea. And I think it's a Western idea that has almost become a doctrine in the Western church, which is like your best life now. And, and uh, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and all those kinds of things. And I don't see that. Mm-hmm. I don't see that supported in scripture. Yes. God loves his people. There's no doubt about that. Yes. God desires for his people to be blessed, but I don't think blessing often, I don't think blessing looks the way that we have shaped it 
to look through our Western lens. I completely um, agree. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so if the church can stay on mission, the church doesn't have a mission. And a lot of people say, what's the mission of the church? What's the mission statement? What's the, the church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church. Mm. The, the great commission was, was God's design and the vehicle that he created to usher that design into implementation was the church. We yeah. are the vehicle. Yeah. So it's like, we have this backwards. We, mm. Well, it's the mission. No, we are the mission. Like this is, this whole thing is the mission. The mission has a church. And the moment that the church sacrifices mission for comfort, like we've lost the whole thing. So we have gotten really good in the Western church at producing members, but we're really bad at producing missionaries. What we're doing, I think ourselves a disservice when we put more emphasis on producing members and less emphasis on producing missionaries. Mm -hmm. we're, we're missionaries. You're a missionary to Sydney. You know, you're a missionary. I'm a missionary to LA. Right. And so I need to understand what that really looks like. And most oftentimes what that looks like is taking Matthew six, literally like seek first the kingdom. What is that? Mm. All of it. <laughs> yeah. All of it. Not all just the it. parts I like all of it. If that means I have less in terms of material possessions, if that means I live in a smaller house, if that means my life's a little more hectic, I'm surrounded by people who don't always share the same political ideology as me, mm -hmm. right? These, I think, are small sacrifices in the grand scheme of things. The next two clips that I want to share with you highlight the mindset shift that needs to take place if we are going to see continued growth in the apostolic church. The first is from Simeon Costa in episode 42, and the second is from Sam Renima in episode 47. True success and true growth is changing our mentality from short-term to long-term. So short-term is we had 34 people get the Holy Ghost this week. We baptized 12, Yahoo, and we got it posted. Now everybody knows, whoa, these guys had 34 people get the Holy Ghost. Mm. That must be amazing, right? <laughs> but then you go to the church and where's the 34? Mm. So I'm going to say heaven, heaven's looking for a church that pours as much resources and focus in getting the 34 to then disciple, making disciples and, and developing and mentoring the 34. Hmm. And that's, that's drops off. I remember in, in, in Stockton and other places, we have Holy ghost crusades. We'd have two, 300 people get the Holy ghost at our crusade, but they weren't a church the next week. Hmm. So the point is, is how are we integrating them? And so what, what, what kind of what I do is I'm like, great, you got the Holy Spirit baptized? How can we lock you into a life study this coming week? Now, here's our options. Here's where we're at. Here's our locations. Where do you live? You live in this area? Great, awesome. We're going to be here at 7 o'clock on Tuesday. Bring whoever you want to bring. Um, I'll tag in with you the day before just to confirm you're coming. Boom. Yeah. Now we're going to see exponential growth. And, and so this is where maybe we're missing that, hmm. is, is the discipleship component. And here's why. Discipleship takes time. Discipleship, discipleship takes energy. Discipleship takes giving a piece of yourself and your life into someone. And we would rather shout, you know, rah, rah at church. Let's do it all at church. But hey, man, Monday through Saturday, leave me alone. Hmm. I'm having a great time. 
versus Monday through Saturday is where I thrive. Monday through Saturday is where I'm doing golf, putt-butt golf with this person that's not even going to church just yet. And this one just received the Holy Ghost. They're new, but I'm teaching them a life study or I'm living life with all of these people, doing life with all of these people and teaching and holding babies. And I'm at a quinceanera. And you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. in their world, hmm. you know, Jesus, the Bible says, Jesus was the friend of sinners. Think about that one for a while. That, if you start there, discipleship follows because I'll never forget, I was in Europe with um, the youth pastor at the time was Jeff Garner. It was about 16 of us traveling through Europe for 30 days. And, you know, I'm a real emotional type person and even more so back then. And we're in the van and I'm crying in the van. And I'm like, I'm like, Pastor Garner, how come we're not reaching more people? How come we're not winning more people? And he says, you know, Simon, I don't know the answer. He said, but I do know the scripture says Jesus was the friend of sinners. I started thinking about it. Am I really friends with sinners? Like, are they my friends? Or are they just a person that needs God, but I don't really know them? And I think, I, I think we're afraid to be friends with people that are not church. Uh, Jesus, let me just say this. Jesus was never afraid of being around darkness because he was the light. Hmm. Church folks are afraid of really influencing the world because in reality, they're more afraid of being influenced by the world than influencing the world around them. I am not afraid of darkness because I have the light. Hmm. If you get around me, something's going to happen to you, not the other way around. Pharisees and the religious never truly felt comfortable with Jesus, and nor did he with them. But the Bible says he ate with publicans and sinners. And he was called gluttonous and a winebibber because he, he, he loved being around people that needed help mm. he loved being around people that were sick because he was the answer and if you get about people and you get focused on people and you love people your whole life will be changed like i said the reason jesus wasn't afraid to be around people is because he was the light he knew he changed everything around him when he got there mm. um, and i think there's just too many christians that we're not walking in the power of the spirit. We're not walking in the light of the power of the spirit. So therefore, you know, we don't know what to do with that. I'm not afraid. Like get me around whoever, let's start going at it. You know, mm. I'm going to be the game changer here. I'm going to, I'm going to be the one that turns the tide. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. it's mentality, it's attitude. It's how we're being, uh, it's how we're being taught and it's, it's, and it's, how, and it's seen in how we carry that out. I would say that I would say our mindset is very defensive sometimes and um brother stan gleason covers this in his in his book follow to lady he says sometimes we we when someone is saved right we we call them out we tell them to come out from their community we protect them we nurture them right we have to do that they're newborns but then we assimilate them to the church culture and then they get connected with these other ministries and then over time, we know that they lose that connection with their family and their friends. Mm. That's why we say new converts are always the best, you know, witnesses because this is new and they're still connected. To, but then they get so assimilated into the church culture that all their friends are church friends, mm. you know? Yeah. So um, I would say that that would just be the, you know, if we, we read the Bible, right, there's, there's, there's a number of occasions where Jesus heals someone and then they say, I want to follow you. 
and he says, no, go back to your family and tell them about all the good works that I've done. Mm. You know? Like, he sends them back. So I think we could bring them out, nurture them, protect them, but then we've got to equip them and empower them to go back into that community and reach that community. Stan Gleason says, Brother Stan Gleason said, if everyone was like me, they would only reach the people I can reach. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why God has called us and at the time that he's called us to reach that community at that specific time. So I think that's just like in terms of discipleship, we think, you know, protect and it's always guard and defend that person, make sure that they're safe. If we're doing our job properly, to be honest, like and we're, we're grounding them, we're equipping them, empowering, giving them all the tools um, that they need to be a witness for Jesus Christ, we should have confidence in that. In episode 49, I had the high honor of speaking with Bishop John Downs on the podcast. He is the recently retired General Superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church of Australia and has been in national leadership for over four decades. I asked him what the Apostolic Church needs to focus on moving forward. This was his response. If we continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ because uh, Jesus is in the salvation business. We've, we've only got to proclaim it. It's God's church. He will He will grow it and there will be a continual revival. All we've got to do is to do our part. Although whatever God has called us to do, of course, every, man is, every member should be the sole winner. And I'll just say this, the parable of the sower, he went forth to sow. And when you read that parable you think he wasn't a very good farmer he he threw some of it on the path and some of it on the stones and but that says to me where very often we can be quite selective but god just wants us to go and sow and and he he will bring in the harvest god is unlimited Mm. we we have all these things in our mind that you can't do this and you can't do that not enough money uh, and and so it goes on. And I think if God's ministers will be sacrificial with their money and their time and their talents, God is unlimited. And I maybe through some of the illustrations I've given today, we can just trust God when we think we're walking or going ahead in, into an unknown. That if God is with us, if we believe God is with us, then He's unlimited. And he will step in at the right time. The church will continue to grow because we serve a God who is unlimited. Amen. Before we finish up, I wanted to share this with you. This answer changed my life and I knew I had to include it in this episode. In episode 32, I was blessed to talk with Pastor Tim Zuniga. He is a great leader who has tremendous insight. I love the whole episode, and I would encourage you all to listen to it if you haven't uh, yet listened to that one. But I especially loved his response about what drives him. You know, one verse just just comes out, and um, I think it's in Romans 8, 12, or 12, 8, something like that. And it's the verse that says, you know, if you have the gift of teaching, then teach. If you have the gift of giving, give. But in that verse, it says, if you've been given the gift to lead— do it with all diligence. Okay. If God's given you the gift to lead, then, then do it with all diligence. I think the King James says rule. You rule, rule with all diligence. 
years ago, I, I, I came into a relationship with that verse that, that every day I want to honor God with the, the mantle that he's placed on my life. And I want to do it well, because one day I'll stand before God and I will give an account for my leadership. And then that day, I want to hear well done. But the goal for me is not to hear it just one time, one day in the future. I want to hear it today. When I lay my head in bed tonight, I want to hear the Lord say, well done. You did great today. You led well today. So that is a deep driving force in my that, that I want to lead well. Um, I'm not the smartest. I wish I was smarter. I'm not the most talented. I wish I was more talented. I'm not the brightest. I wish I had way more insight than I do. I wish I was way more creative than I am. Um, I, I, but I, I just know that one day I will stand before God to give an account for my leadership. And that day I want to look at him and say, I, I did the best I could. I, I, I swung for the fence. I dreamed as big. I risked. I stepped out of the boat. I, I faced Goliaths. I walked in the fiery f- furnace. I, 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 I wanted to, you to know that I, I love this idea of the local church, and I want to serve her well. That drives me. I don't know how to say it any other way, but that just truly, truly drives me. Having that mindset every day will change your life. I want God to say, well done, every day. Not just someday, not ultimately when I get to heaven, but every day. Today, I want to hear God say, well done. That is such a good word. Amen. It really has been an amazing start to this journey on the Hacker Podcast. And we're not finished yet. We're going to continue to have life-changing conversations with amazing guests And I'm so looking forward to what God is going to do in the next 50 episodes. But I wanted to end our celebration with this challenging word from Christopher Green in episode 20. Thank you for celebrating with us today. Now go out and change the world. The flow of his spirit moves through a burden for lost souls. The flow of his anointing moves through a intercessory spirit of prayer for lost souls. And, and God showed me a vision one time because I've been praying for years. God, I want to see more people receive the Holy Ghost. This is something I'm going after. See, let me stop right there and say this. One reason why you don't see more people receive the Holy Ghost is, is ask yourself, how often do I pray about this? How many times do I ask God, God, help me to see people receive the Holy Ghost. Help me to minister to those that need to receive the Holy Ghost. Help me to lay hands upon the lost and see them receive the Holy Ghost. How many times do you take the time to actually say those words and pray that prayer of desire to see people receive the Holy Ghost? And then, you know, and then all of a sudden we're presented with the opportunity and we're thinking, man, I want to see them get the Holy Ghost, but I haven't spent any time in this element of prayer, in this, in this vein of prayer, you know, and so the Lord gave me this vision in, in one morning that I was praying about this, and I saw this big body of water. And the Lord said, this body of water represents the gifts of the Spirit. And I'm standing in this vision. I'm standing on the banks of this body of water, meaning I'm not in this water. I felt like I don't have the gifts of the Spirit, you know. And in my dream, I knew it had something to do with praying for people to receive the Holy Ghost. And I'm thinking, well, I can't pray for people to receive the Holy Ghost. I'm not a harvester, as they call it. Mm. And, the, and all of a sudden, to my left, I see God build this bridge over the water from one 
side to the next. And God says, walk the bridge. And I walk the bridge and I get up on top of the bridge and I'm in between. I'm, uh, I, I'm in the middle of the bridge, standing over the water. And in, in, in what the wisdom that came to me in the, in the dream in this moment was I was superior to the water. I was above the water. I was, in a, in a sense, I was almost better than the water. And the water represented the gifts of the spirit. And God spoke to me and said, anyone that walks this bridge can do what those do, can do who have the gifts of the spirit. And I said, well, what is this bridge? And God said, it is a burden for lost souls. Mm -hmm. It's intercessory prayer. It's loving the lost. It's feeding the homeless. It's clothing the naked. It's giving to the widows and it's helping the children, the orphans. And that's what Jesus said, pure and undefiled religion is. In fact, that's where you find the miracles that Jesus prophesied in Mark chapter 16, the famous verse, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And later he says, these signs will follow them that believe in my name. They will and he begins to say, you know, they will uh, cast out devils and speak with new tongues and nothing will harm them. They'll lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. But he, the context is where? In the world, reaching the lost souls. Matthew 10 and Luke 10, he tells them to go into the world. And watch this. In Matthew 10, he tells them to go and preach in the world to lost souls. And he says, when you do this, four miracles will happen. You will heal the sick. You will cleanse the lepers, you will raise the dead, and you will cast out devils. But the context was when you go into the world, a few verses later in like verse 15 or so, he says, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. This is where the miracles are going to happen when you reach for lost souls. So in that vision, the bridge was reaching for lost souls, a burden for lost souls intercession for lost souls. And God said, when you walk this bridge, you can do anything that I want you to do. Mm -hmm. You can do anything that my people do who possess the gifts of the spirit. Why am I saying all of this? Because many people listening to this right now think, well, I don't have the gift of faith. I don't have the gifts of healing. I don't have the working of miracles. I don't have the laying upon of hands. I don't have the word of prophecy, the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, and so forth, the discerning of spirits. But if you have a burden for lost souls, you can do anything that God wants you to do. You can heal the sick. You can raise the dead. You can cast out devils. You can cleanse the lepers. You can pray for people to receive the Holy Ghost, and they shall receive the Holy Ghost. I end this question with a question. How did Jesus save the world? He saved the world through his crucifixion on an old rugged cross. Now, here's really the question. How did he go through that? He didn't want to go through that. He prayed, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, uh, let thy will be done, not mine. Don't let my will be done. Let your will be done. How did he do that? It was something, watch this. It was something that in his flesh he didn't want to do and he was not capable of doing. Did he do it with, with the gift of faith? Did he do it with the working of miracles? Did he do it with the word of prophecy? No, he did it with a burden for lost souls. How did he do something that was beyond his ability? He had a burden for you. 
God will use you in the miraculous. Man, I feel the Holy Ghost right now. God will use you in the miraculous of His Spirit. He will give you an anointing that will destroy every yoke of bondage when you get beyond yourself and you begin to have a burden for someone else. When you begin to pray for lost souls and intercede for lost souls and travail and groaning in the Spirit for lost souls and you begin to uh, give of yourself to those that you don't even know, to those that are less fortunate than you, to those who have never heard the gospel, and you get beyond your pride and beyond your complacency and beyond your comfort and your tradition and your routine and your fear, and you reach for lost souls, then and only then will you see the glory of God revealed in your life because it was his burden that led him to the cross. It was his cross that led him to the grave but it was his grave that led him to resurrection power, the glory of God in Jesus' name.